Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. On Thursday morning, Professor Luke O'Neill spoke to Pat Kenny about the latest developments from the world of science in the battle against the virus. Yeah, yet again it's political. The Russians are claiming to have a vaccine. Uh, they say it's going to be available from August the 10th, which is just a couple of weeks away. And of course the world is looking at this very closely. Can it be true? Because it must mean, you know, they, they, they speeded things up basically but yeah they're calling it it's their Sputnik because they say we're better than the Americans basically so it's certainly an intriguing development yeah, the Americans were gobsmacked when uh, the Russians put a satellite into space, the original Sputnik, and now they seem to have done exactly the same, wiped the eye of the Americans with the development of the vaccine. Is there any scientific paper coming out of Russia? Any details as to how they tested it? Do they just line up the army and give them all a shot in the arm and see how it went? Yeah, well, as usual, I guess there's not much information coming out, but it is a, an inst- called the Gamalaya Institute in Moscow, which is a reasonable place, by the way, so that gives a bit of credibility. They're using what's called an adenoviral vector. Now that's the same vector being used by you know, other places outside Russia, so therefore they're you know, somewhat optimistic, I guess, because it's a well-known vector. They claim that it worked in MERS. Remember the other coronavirus uh, that we had a few years ago? And there was no data ever published on that, and there's no data published on this either. So it's very much kind of a press release that says, we've got there first. Russian science is great, and Putin, of course, loves this because he's saying Russia is a preeminent scientific country. Just like, it's like, like Sputnik, the parallel is striking, but isn't it? They're saying with Sputnik they got there mm. first, didn't they? And now they're going to get there first with the vaccine. They're saying, yeah, it was tested on soldiers. So the trials were done in their military. That's another thing to be slightly concerned about. They they say they finished the phase two trial. They're about to start the phase three, but they're approving it ahead of that. Isn't that strange? Because other countries want to go through the phase three trial mm. first. They say they're going to give it to healthcare workers first. This is from August the 10th, if you can believe it. And then they're going to carry on with the phase three testing, I suppose. So it's a, it's, it's a we would see it as a risky proposition, really. And the question is how rigorously they do it. Do they do the blind testing, you know, 15,000 health workers who get the real thing and 15,000 who get some sort of placebo? And then, of course, if the thing goes wrong, if it hasn't been properly proven, you take out, you vaccinate all your health workers and if you knock them for six, yeah, what right. then? That's right. And then we'd love to see that we see science should be published, shouldn't it, in the public domain. And we'd like to see all the data they've got so far and then see what happens next kind of thing. Otherwise, we won't learn anything from this at all. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if it doesn't work, will we hear about it? That's the other thing to worry about. In other words, the world won't benefit from this effort necessarily. But as I say, though, it's a standard technology. It is a bit like Sputnik in a way, because that was a standard technology that just were a bit faster than the Americans. You know, So this adenoviral vector is well known. So I guess let's just see what happens next. Now, I don't know whether you've seen this, Luke, but how to not get COVID-19. It's very simple. Avoid men and follow women. Yeah, isn't this brilliant? You this? I, think, I think you spotted this. So it's a superb. Yeah. So you want to avoid men. That means avoid your mouth, your eyes and your nose. That's M-E-N, right? So avoid touching those three things, obviously. And follow women, which is wash your hands, uh, obey social distancing, mask up. You know, that's no M. E is exercise regularly and no unnecessary travel is the N. So that's a longer one to remember, isn't it? But it's quite a good one, isn't it? No, avoid men and follow women and follow those five things. And that, that would really help, you know. So it's a good thing to keep in our minds. Now, I know you want to talk about uh, getting back to school uh, this morning because it's more than just about COVID-19. It's about 
the long-term well-being of many, many children in the world. That's right. What's great about this, somehow, is they're looking at schools. Obviously, for Ireland, it's number one on the, our list, isn't it, at the moment, and lots of discussion about it. We can look at other countries and see what's happened in them and compare them to what our plans are. I mean, it's a staggering fact, Pat, that 90% of the world's children were out of school, remember, during the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 60% now. So a third are back in school. And, of course, in different countries, we can look at that and see what those countries are doing. And some countries, it's amazingly variable, Pat. The first thing is it's this huge difference of opinion on this one. So in so in Kenya, for instance, they've cancelled the whole school year. LA and San Diego will just be remote learning only. In the Philippines, Pat, they're saying we, we're waiting for a vaccine before we reopen the schools. That's the most extreme view, isn't it, in a way? So so we can look at these countries and then wonder what's worked and what hasn't. And obviously for us, it's, it's a key thing to get right. The good news is, Pat, most countries who've reopened, there haven't been that many spikes caused by school reopening. And of course, one reason is they are following the things we're going to do, social distancing, you know, the usual hand hygiene. Uh, Israel was an exception, Pat, because they did have a couple of spikes in schools uh, they shut schools down again and that was they think because they weren't they were too lax you know with some of the rules so so it's quite a good time to compare ourselves to other countries i guess now there definitely are differences in the different age cohorts if you're very young uh, say you're under 10 going to school it appears that you don't present much risk of infection that's right. Well, the, the, see, the other big question that we discussed before, children and their risk of infection, it does seem to be less than adults. So if you put children in a place where there's a risk of infection and compare them to adults, they're probably half as likely to get infected. That's what the data says at the moment. That's a good thing, isn't it? And then the second thing is, of course, much less severe disease. It's a very benign disease in the vast majority of children. But the problem is they might get infected and then infect a, you know, a vulnerable person and spread it that way. So those, that's stuff the science is telling us. So children are doing well overall, basically. But the risk is they might spread it then to, to a more vulnerable person. Now, there was a study in Germany of 1,500 teenage pupils and 500 teachers who had gone back into the schoolroom and only 0.6% had antibodies to the virus indicating that at some point they had been infected and that was less than half the national rate yeah. found in other studies. So what's that telling us? That they're less likely to get infected. That, that's some of the data they're using to say kids are less likely to be infected as a group, you know, because otherwise there would be higher antibodies for evidence of infection, you see. But Germany is a fascination because they reopened, right? And they're using the same things that we're doing. They're, they're doing the social distancing and the hygiene. Staggered classes is a big one, Pat, there, where half the class comes in for one period, another half the next to keep the numbers down. But masks is the burning question, Pat, as we know in Ireland as well. Like, should school kids wear masks? The Germans, I think, I think a very sensible approach. They say you should wear masks for secondary school only, but only in when you're outside the classroom, when you're in crowded areas and you might be, you know, less risk of or more higher risk of, of picking it up. So they're saying don't wear them in the classroom. Very difficult, of course, for teenagers to wear masks for the whole day in a classroom, but definitely wear them in the school when you're outside the classroom. And I think that makes sense. I'd, I'd advocate for that, I think. Mm. Now, the, the problem is for poorer children. They suffer more. I mean, number one, if the schools invoke distance learning and you have lousy broadband or no Wi-Fi worth a damn, um, distance learning is not much good to you. That, that's right. And, and in fact, study after study is confirming this, Pat, that if you're in a, say, a lower socioeconomic group, you will suffer much more from school closures. The developing world especially suffers because, you know, there's all kinds of problems. And then the kids, the, the parents won't bring the kids back to school and they, they get a job in their teens instead kind of thing. There was one study, Pat, the World Bank has shown five months out of school means you've got a 7% drop in your lifetime earnings. So that really damages career prospects. Hence, of course, as we're all saying, we've got to reopen the schools. But you're right, there are these differences. In the 
developing countries, Pat, they're, what they're advocating for is giving parents cash to encourage them to get their kids back into school. And girls in particular are kept out of education in, in some of those countries, you see, if things are challenging, you know, and that will have really damaging long-term effects for those girls' prospects. So there's all these, this debate is happening all over the world, basically. Now, it's uh, hotting up in the United States where Donald Trump says, you know, get the schools open and it's become political and just because Donald Trump, you know, advocates hydroxychloroquine doesn't mean that every idea he has is wrong. That's right. Yeah. Well, again, we're watching America with wise eyes wide open, aren't we, Pat, in a way? And, and there's confusion over there. There's differences between different parts in terms of policies on, on schools reopening. There's a mission to reopen them for the same reasons we have. And everybody knows this has to be done. So, And remember, Pat, it can be done safely. That's what these studies have shown. Uh, the 22 education ministers had a meeting a couple of months ago and looked at all their schools that were open and so on and said, look, this, this was OK to do. So there's no doubt if we follow the guidelines, very carefully it should be a safe thing to do Now you mentioned to me that the main union in the Los Angeles uh, area urges the schools to remain closed until a wish list of demands has been met that's a it's fun, a bit. It's a funny <laughs> a bit one. Del- well, they want universal health care is on their wish list. You see, so so teachers' unions are saying, "Look, for heaven's sake, you know, we 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 have you know certain things we'd like to happen in our country as a whole." So they're kind of tying those two things together, you know, which which might make it very difficult to reopen, of course. But it's a very hot topic, isn't it? And, and and like obviously, teachers have their opinions and and they're very well meaning and they want the best for their society as well. Remember, and their children. So so it's a really interesting debate that's happening there. The thing about teachers is that, you know, they're still being paid um, if they're in public schools while they're at home. So there's no great incentive to go rushing back to work. Uh, and that has got to be factored in, whereas the parents may be out of work themselves while they're caring for their children. Um, which countries have gone back to school and have done it very successfully. Yeah, the t- top of the class, Pat, strange is Uruguay of all countries. They seem to get it really right. You know, they, they staggered it. They, they didn't bring everybody back at once. They, again, observed the things that we're doing in the Irish schools, by the way, all the hand hygiene and social distancing. So, so they come out top. They ticked all the boxes. Japan did very well as well, actually, back to school. And, you know, everything seemed to be fine. No evidence of outbreaks and clusters there. And we could be lucky, Pat, and if it's the case that children are less likely to be infected and maybe less likely to pass it on, the jury's still out on that, by the way, as whether kids are actually a source of spread. If we're lucky with kids, and it looks like we are, then opening schools isn't quite as risky as we would have first worried about. And in fact, the, the reason why Israel got it wrong is they were very lax, it looks like, and they've been criticised now for not following all the guidelines that we have. So, so we can look at this with some optimism based on these other countries. Now, a big question that comes up again and again, um, why do people lose their sense of smell? And if someone has lost their sense of smell for a while, does that mean they've definitely had COVID-19 or could it be caused by something else? There's fantastic science on this. But I remember, as I was saying to you, every day I'm seeing great science being published on, on every aspect of COVID-19 and a paper this week on why we lose our sense of smell and what the mechanism of that might be and what's going on there. Now, other viruses do this. And if you had a cold yourself, we all have had colds. You remember losing your sense of smell a bit. Um, that's mainly caused by inflammation in the nose. And that means your nose is a bit swollen. You're making loads of mucus, as we know, and that blocks up the various channels that you smell things through, you see. So it's, it's, a, it's a reasonably well-known thing and other infections but it stands out with COVID-19 this is a big feature of COVID-19 most people lose their sense of smell and that's of interest and scientists wonder why and they've, they've unravelled it Pat it's brilliant so they've figured out now which cells are being damaged by the virus now when you sniff something up your nose the special cells
cells in your nose that pick up the chemicals and then detect them, you know, and then nerves, mm -hmm. the olfactory nerve, it's called, goes into your brain and says, oh, that smells of lemon or whatever it might be. And it's very complicated, actually, lots of different cell types. It's not the nerves that get damaged. That's a good thing because we'd worry if this virus can damage nerves. It's the supporting cells that keep those nerves going. And a great new name for you about Bowman's gland cell. It's a well-known cell if you work on the sense of smell. That particular cell seems to be damaged. And then the stem cells that replace the damaged cells, they're getting infected and they're being damaged as well. So it's a really good study, actually, that really pins down why this is. And of course, the reason why these Bowman gland cells are infected is they've got the receptor. Remember the virus, the spike protein, if the key goes into the lock, the lock is ACE2. These cells express lots of ACE2. And then the other little fact for you, Pat, is you know when the key goes into the lock, it gets clipped by a protease, strangely. The key gets broken, amazingly, and now the virus gets in. Strange mechanism, and you need this separate part. And sure enough, all these cells have this protease as well. So basically, all the apparatus is there in, in these supporting cells for the virus to get in. And, and then the virus kills them. That's, that's what it does to those cells. That does the nose recover? It does. The good news, that can take months, strangely, for some reason. I mean, it, clearly the virus, is, it's like other parts of your body. The virus damages the body and the body tries to repair itself. And that can take weeks and weeks and weeks. It's a bit like any injury, really, you know. And in the nose, it does take one, two, three months, depending on, there'll be variation between us, I suppose. But most people, their sense of smell does come back. All right, we're getting some uh, questions in for Luke. You can text them in to News Talk 53106. Now, you've been looking at a number of drugs that have been found to stop SARS-CoV-2 from replicating. And these are drugs that, you know, are already not quite on the shelf, although some of them are. Yeah, this is very clever. And this, actually, to be honest about this, it's been on for years. There's, there's 12,000 drugs you see that are on the shelf that have been used in humans for other diseases, obviously, and were safe. You know, And some of these were on the market then for different types of diseases. And these 12,000 drugs are there. And, and scientists in America took them off the shelf and said, let's give it a go. Because if they work, they might get into humans more quickly because they've been already approved by the FDA for the diseases and are known to be safe. And 12,000 were screened. It's a real tour de force. And what they did was they tried to see, just ask a very simple question, can this drug kill the virus and you can do that in a test tube and that's your first test and my lab is, is doing the very same thing to be honest it's very competitive you can, it's easy to do in a sense because you can infect cells put the drug on and measure the virus and see if it's killed and lo and behold 21 came out of the 12,000 that were very potent and that was a good sign I remember all 21 would have been in humans and shown to be safe and then finally four have risen to the top and now those four are of great interest so it's so in a quite a quick way they've managed to get to the point where they have four drugs safe in humans that could well kill the virus and I presume the doctors get to hear about these fairly quickly, do they? So that, you know, a patient in Ireland, for example, uh, might have this prescribed one or other of or all of them. That's right. They're available to be prescribed now. Now, they will do more tests. The next step is they're going to test these lung organoids that we discussed before, little mini lungs that you can grow in the dish and that they work there. And then it could easily go straight into humans very, very quickly. And, and what was good as well was that they did this. They did two things. They tried to see if the drug was killing the virus, but they tried it with remdesivir. Now, remember, that was the antiviral that we discussed before that Iliad had made, and that works in 30% of people. There was a good effect there. Can you combine it with that and see a synergy? And two of them really synergize with remdesivir. Desivere, and then you've got two punches, you know, and that's that's really exciting because now you give both drugs and really see an antiviral effect and they're pushing those, those forward as well.
And there's a, a connection with Ireland and with Trinity College, uh, clofazamine, is that how you well, say it? Well, I read this pattern and I nearly fell off my seat because this drug clofazamine was discovered in Trinity in the 1950s, if you can believe it, Vincent Barry and his team, for leprosy. And it was approved for leprosy. And in fact, it's the only drug discovered in Ireland. Pat, there's a bit of history for you. The, the only drug that was approved, you know, that was actually discovered in Ireland. And it was used for leprosy, still is in India, for example. And, and Vincent Barry is famous for this, actually, to be honest. And lo and behold, clofazamine worked. Now, that's a very exciting development. Can you imagine if that uh, goes forward and makes it? So that was a really good one to see. And then again, it was in this group of 12,000 drugs and lo and behold, it was the one that came out of the screen. In other words, they didn't set it up. to. They weren't Irish investigators because they might have, you know, <laughs> leaned towards an Irish discovery. But, but certainly that was shown to be very efficacious. Now, some of the questions coming in, Luke. Uh, can you ask about reinfection and the length of time immunity lasts based on current knowledge? You know, shockingly, we still don't know, but that, that's been a question for the last three months, really, hasn't it? You know, and, and the big, this the biggest question, really, in a sense, that can you get reinfected? And we still don't fully know. I mean, as we've said before, they've done things in monkeys and they, and they couldn't reinfect them after they're infected, for instance. That's the strongest evidence to say that you would be protected. What's also holding up, Pat, is the more severe disease you have, the more likely it is you're going to be protected next time because your immune system has really got going during that severity, you know. I mean, I think at the moment, the consensus is that you could get reinfected, but much, much mild. You know, that, that's probably the one scenario that might, yeah. might, uh, might emerge. A comment from C. Many passengers are getting on buses with face coverings and then removing them upstairs. They then go on their smartphones and they perhaps eat and drink. The spot checks are non-existent. So they cod the driver yeah. by having the mask getting on and then immediately abandon it when they uh, get uh, their first opportunity upstairs. Um, why will our secondary school goers not be required to wear masks? It doesn't seem like a good idea. I've two secondary school boys and I'd be much happier for them and their teachers to have them in masks with breaks from them during the day. It's a really important question, Pat, to be honest. And, and I'd be advocating for masks, certainly for that age group. Under it's, Primary school is too difficult. In fact, on Ontario, they've looked at a, other countries have looked at this very closely remember, and tried to come to some kind of decision on it. Ontario have said, uh, primary school, forget it, it's too difficult to, to, to maintain that and the younger age groups is impossible to implement, you know. But why, why shouldn't teenagers wear masks as, as they do if they're on the dart or in, in a supermarket, you know? And then the question becomes how often during the day will they wear them? Can, is learning going to be affected by mask wearing? But certainly it's another measure to use to keep everybody safe. And, and as I said, the Germans seem to have a halfway house where you don't wear them in the classroom because you're in your bubble, you know, and then there's hand hygiene and distancing is in the classroom and then maybe that helps with learning if you're not wearing it but when you come out of the classroom you put the mask on immediately in the school you know and that, that seems to be a sensible approach yeah. to me I heard stories of you know prefabs being ordered by the, the bucket load uh, to cope with this because we have in primary school uh, high numbers of students in each classroom and you know schools don't have space yeah, that's so right. they're going to have to create space in order to, to advance things. Now, here's a question. Uh, someone wants to know, uh, they have an immunocompromised person in the house. Is it safe to bring painters in for much needed decoration? And, you know, what would be the protocols about using loos and things like that? Well, again, you've got to be very careful if you're immunocompromised because you're at risk of picking up an infection and having a difficult course through it. So, again, the usual rule should apply. I'd be avoiding the painters if they're in the house. I'd keep my distance, you know, and the 15-minute rule is very important here, you know, so I'd be, I'd, I'd be cautious with that one. Now, using toilets, remember, they turn out to be relatively low-risk places um, because, you know, the, you know at the time, 
someone spends an hour's less, the chance is low, you know, but just get to make sure the toilet's kept clean, usual, usual uh, hygiene process, that'll be fine. And, and dedicated, if you've got more than one, dedicate one toilet to the, the decorators or builders yeah. or, or whatever and open the damned window. That's right, a ventilation. <laughs> ventilate it. The yeah. usual things. To, I mean, in other words, anybody in a vulnerable group has always got to be cautious, remember, so, so just keep that in mind. It, it can be, the yeah. painter should be let in, but just, just be cautious. Yeah, and the other thing is you can always wait till the vaccine comes along and leave your place looking a bit shabby for a while. Yeah. You will be forgiven, I suspect, by any visitors. Uh, quite a few people asking uh, for Luke's opinion on the effectiveness of face shields as opposed to masks. Now, we know the people on the front line wear both. Yeah, yeah. This is a great question that keeps coming up because we'd love to, some people prefer wearing them, you know, because they're a bit more comfortable and so on. They're definitely less effective. Let's start with that for obvious. Again, you can use your common sense in a way, you know, because they're more open and stuff can get out of them then, you know. The second worry people have is the spray goes on the, on the on them and then it's covered in virus and they're put down somewhere, this kind of thing. You've got to wash them all the time as well. But they, they do make a difference. I mean, it's better than nothing. That's for sure, you know. So that's okay. But but the cotton mask is much better. And, and again, Pat, another great bit of science yesterday in Australia a three ply cotton mask fantastic effects there blocking the virus you know so we keep seeing that, that data around that strengthening but people are looking at those um, those more plasticky face masks one in more detail now to maybe make them a bit better but certainly stuff comes out of them more readily you know Why are studies using antibodies to detect levels of infection when we know antibodies are short lived and often barely detectable surely we can't make assumptions based on antibody levels so you were talking before about you know, antibodies and T cells. Yeah, yeah. T cells. I know it's more complicated to test them. Are they more reliable as an indicator of infection? They would be past they, infection. They would be, and they seem to persist for longer. But there's a very important point here. But the immune system is supposed to work like this: you get an infection, you make loads of antibodies, the infection goes away, and antibodies ever fall. Remember, they're supposed to work that way. Otherwise, your lymph nodes will be swollen all the time, full of antibodies. You know, but they fall down to a level that's called the memory B cell level, and there's still more of them, but they're quite hard to detect. You don't need to have a huge amount of memory B cells. You get reinfected, and then you go up again. You know, and that's the way it's supposed to work. So this idea that we'd antibodies forever and we can detect them from months after infection was always nonsense I don't know how that ever got into them I mean, you know, so people sort of misunderstood how the immune system works in a way so that person's right there's no point in measuring antibodies really now because you know they, they will fall down to slightly higher than normal but hard to detect you see so, so, so I think the, uh, the usefulness of measuring antibodies is, is a lot less now shall we say um, a final question. I don't know whether you saw that story about the uh, Texas congressman who was to go to Texas with uh, Donald Trump and, uh, you know, he had to go undergo the routine test. Anyone who's near the president gets tested and he was tested once positive, then tested a little while later positive. Um, and he blamed wearing a mask on it. Well, Said he'd worn a mask a few times. Yep, this is shocking stuff, but isn't it in a way? Yeah, because again, the lobbies against masks continues. Remember, people don't want to wear them and make excuses and so on. And, you know, and the science, the consensus is masks are great, you know, so those sorts of comments don't help, basically. Mm. A final question for you, Luke. I'm hearing several friends saying that if they wear a mask, it will lower their oxygen levels. They're hearing this from social media. I've tried to tell them it's not true. Can you please ask Luke if it will lower someone's oxygen levels if they wear a mask? There's no evidence for that, for definite. That's the first thing I'd say, and it has come up a lot, actually. There's a risk of this. If you have breathing difficulties, you know, then you might sort of struggle a bit wearing a mask, but then you're in a vulnerable group anyway, Pat, and you've got to be cautious, you know. So, But no, there's no evidence that, that masks affect breathing.
Yeah, you just have yeah, to suck or blow a little bit harder than you might otherwise, yeah, and, otherwise and, and have done. But there's different types of masks. Some, some of them are slightly, you know, they're more comfortable. You, everybody should think this. If I'm wearing a mask and I feel comfortable breathing, that's the mask to wear, you know, and then you'll be fine. That was Professor Luke O'Neill speaking to Pat on Thursday. On Wednesday evening, Mark Cagney spoke to Tyg Daly, CEO of Nursing Homes Ireland, and Jermado Dalig, owner of Oak Lodge Nursing Home in Cloyne, about the easing of visitor restrictions comes into force today, Mark. Uh, we've been engaged with the Health Protection Surveillance Centre over the last week or 10 days in relation to the, the, the further easing of visitor restrictions. Uh, it's been very challenging, obviously, as your listeners and yourself will know, in the nursing home mm-hmm. sector when, when visitor restrictions were introduced back in March and it was done with a, a very heavy heart, but done, obviously, for the, the safety and welfare of both residents and staff. So the um, visitor restrictions were eased, first of all, back on the 15th of June. Um, and now they've been further eased effective from today. So that's good news for, for, for residents uh, and, and obviously good news for family members who can now uh, extend the period in which they can visit their family member in a nursing home. But okay. we still need to be vigilant, obviously. Of course, yeah. Uh, Dermot O'Dolick, owner of Oak Lodge Nursing Home in Cloyne in County Cork, you're in the front line. Uh, so obviously you must welcome this. Were you apprehensive about it or, or were you absolutely gagging for it to happen? Uh, I think everybody in the sector in, in care of the older person is apprehensive in case anybody further uh, has to die or dies because of uh, COVID. And that is the, the primary concern of all the owners and all the staff and all the families, I'm sure, and residents. So uh, we had a residence uh, meeting the other day and uh, by and large, the, most of the residents appreciate the fact that uh, we're very, very slowly taking steps to open up uh, within the guidelines, but not rushing into it and uh, they fe- fear as well in case they get it and they know that it's still out there and it's uh, still at large particularly among uh, maybe younger people and we need to take very small steps and take a very humane and holistic approach uh, to keeping our, our residents safe particularly as we we move forward towards the flu season in September and all of that. Okay, Tyg, um, by the way uh, I'm talking to Tyg Daly who's the CEO of the Nursing Homes Ireland and also Dermot O'Dolly who's the owner of uh, the Oak Lodge Nursing Home in Cloyne and we're talking about the fact that uh, visiting restrictions to nursing homes and other residential centres have been relaxed as of today. Ty, when obviously you were de- dealing with uh, the government, the HSE and EFIT and all the rest of it with regard to this, the, your sector has taken an appalling battering. I mean, of the nearly 1,800 uh, fatalities we've had, 1,200 of them in, in nursing homes, which is, it's, it's beyond bearing. Uh, it's beyond, it is, it, it doesn't bear thinking about it. It's, it's awful. And how it happened uh, and why it happened, I'm sure there's going to be a major post-mortem about that uh, as we get out of this. But were they, were they all over you like a rash in terms of things you had to do to, uh, to get this uh, uh, relaxation? Well, I suppose, you know, it has been a very challenging period, as you've said, Mark, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been very challenging for residents, been very challenging for staff, but the staff have done a really super job. I mean, four out of every five residents that contracted COVID actually recovered. Uh, I was pleased to see on the front page of one of the newspapers the other day, a 104-year-old lady who contracted COVID yeah, I saw that. made a full recovery. So, you know, while obviously it's been very traumatic for lots of families and our condolences to all of those, but in effect, the nursing home sector became the front line. Uh, you'll recall back in, in February, March mm. and indeed April, we were we were preparing the acute hospital. So the, 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 the nursing home sector... Uh, became, the, as I said, the front line, and, and uh, there were, you know, significant uh, deaths as a result of COVID-19. But th- this was mirrored across 
many jurisdictions, not alone Ireland. I'm very saddened and indeed concerned to hear today in Australia, for example, where there's been significant increases as well in, in older person settings. So, yes, I mean, the last few weeks, there's been a significant improvement. There's now less than 30 clusters, as I understand it, across nursing homes. But uh, as Dermot has just said there, and our members are really, really nervous. Uh, there's no point in saying anything else. But by the same token, you know, we're, we're relying on families um, because they also understand the implications uh, if we leave our guard down. Um, and, you know, community transmission is a huge part, as we know, of, of COVID-19. So what we'd be saying to our members is be vigilant. Uh, only, you know, despite the fact that there has been a relaxation, we can't have large numbers through any facility at this point in time. And if there is an outbreak in the community, then, you know, it would be very quickly moving back to further restrictions in visiting. So it's something that we have to take very, very carefully and very much baby steps at this point in time. But it is a positive development, uh, ultimately, for, for residents, obviously. Yeah, Dermot O'Dolik, um it is understandable uh, that, that, that you're nervous because, uh, you know, it's the ultimate responsibility. And, and people think, oh, well, you run a nursing home. It's a business. You know, the, the yes, of course, you're sad that people have died, but it's not personal for you. That is absolutely not true. Uh, in 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 the case of the people who own and run uh, these establishments, because their patients, their clients, are people that they have for years in their in their buildings. They become friends. They become close. They become like members of your family. So it's deeply personal, and therefore, of course, you'll be nervous uh, about making sure you do everything. But what about the patients themselves? Are they nervous about the the um, the rules being relaxed? Yeah, I think many of the residents are uh, nervous as well. Um, Have you had anybody in your establishment say to you, look, I'm not sure about this and and actually my family won't be availing of it because we don't want to risk it? uh, Ultimately, it's up to the resident and we would always check with the resident. But that's what I mean. Have any of them said said that to you? Some have said they prefer not to have visitors at the moment. Really? I feel quite safe here. And some of them would have felt more safe here than outside, obviously, during the, yeah. during the whole COVID pandemic. Um, but uh, And we try to obviously balance that with uh, if anybody's uh, sudden change in their health care or they're coming towards the end of life, we allow people uh, come in and spend time as much as possible with their families. But it can be very... Uh, we've only had outside visiting in a covered area so far. We haven't had any visitors come in. We're delighted with the relaxation and we will continue with outside visiting at the moment in a covered area with two or allowing children which is very welcome or grandchildren now which is great altogether and that there's an extended time period because the half an hour was very short so we're glad to remain within the guidelines every facility however has to uh, adjudicate themselves or judge what what is the best and safest way to go forward we're taking baby steps to keep it all uh, safe we're doing the basic education for everyone PPE hand washing we've recently uh, just received yesterday actually an automatic clean tech system uh, that does automatic hand washing and and we believe that will really enhance the the staff hand washing uh, so there's anything we can do we're learning from the experts we continue to take the advice from from experts from there are many experts within mm-hmm. the sector gerontologists and superb nurses with 20 30 40 years experience of older people care and they are the people who really care and help us to provide the service we provide uh, caring for the older person it, it, it is it is as the rest of us kind of return to some kind of normality it's an awful indictment to hear that there are some people in nursing homes and the scar runs so deep with them even though they haven't seen friends family relatives uh, uh, um, for months 
that they'd rather not risk it because that scar does run that deep. Um, um, Ty, you know, it's it's we're we're trying to recover and and in the recovery we're trying to forget what's actually happened. But for some people, it's never going to go away, is it? Absolutely. And look, they, you know, older people are no different to you and I. Uh, you know, they share the same concerns. They're they're fearful. Um, they're they're nervous. They're concerned about what's happening in the community at large. They see the newspapers. They and see let's the, face it, Tyke, they they've the got news. less time to play with than we have. So they're entitled to be more nervous than the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, the, the Dermot has just outlined there, the, the job of work that people are doing within the sector, you know, uh, needs to be recognised because, you know, the staff, and you made the point there that staff care deeply for the residents in their care. They would get to know them over a period of time. The nursing home is a community of all of its own, of staff and residents. And while families couldn't come in, uh, in fact, you know, staff will never be family, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the staff, you know, stood up and, and made sure that every resident uh, was regularly visited by, 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 um, by staff themselves and made sure that the staff, I suppose, took on extra responsibility, if you like, in terms of ensuring that social connectedness from older people. So, look, it has been very, very challenging all around, but I think it's important to point out the positives as well. And as Dermot has just outlined there, the residents counsel themselves. I mean, the best people that will tell you what they want are the, the older people themselves. And that's very, very important. No one will speak for me but me. Okay. And I think it's important that we listen to the voice of older people. And despite all the, the HPSC guidance and the HSE guidance and Ty Daly and the minister and everybody else, the best person that will decide about visits will be the older person okay. himself or herself. Very quickly, uh, Dermot, one, one quick last question and I'm acutely aware of the sensitivities and this question is not designed to offend anybody but by virtue of the tragically high numbers of fatalities in nursing homes you've had a lot of vacancies. Now, have they been filled or has there been a reluctance um, on the part of people to take up those vacancies? Um. I suppose in the sector uh, overall, there have been vacancies, of course, through the through the uh, deaths. But that would be, I suppose, a certain amount of debt is normal for people come in for a couple of years at the end of life. I suppose really are are quite high, depending on when they come in. So we would be used to that, and the, most of them seem to okay. be filling up. We well, still actually, have a strong waiting list here. But just one point I'd like to make is that during the whole time, there was loads of Skype, FaceTime, WhatsApp, mm. and and all the technology people adapted in all the nursing homes to help residents stay. In face contact and in visual and hearing contact through phone and everything with their family so people weren't, didn't feel as isolated maybe as it might be perceived that they were. That was Tyg Daly and Jerma Dodolik speaking to the hard shoulder on Wednesday and that's all we've time for this week. We'll continue to bring you up to date with all the latest relating to COVID-19 here on News Talk and you can subscribe to this podcast in Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts from but for me Shane Beatty, stay safe and bye bye for now.